Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow, from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is, I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the darkness gave no token, and the only word there was spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning. Soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then where thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not an instant stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched upon my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stirred decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, Though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculpted bust above his chamber door, with such name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only, 
that one word as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store. Caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. But the raven still beguiling all my sad soul into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing, to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining that lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphin whose footfalls tingled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee. Respite, respite, and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven. Nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate, yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there bomb in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken, quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow 
that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. Hello and welcome to Raise a Glass, the podcast where we talk about the stories and storytellers that shape us. Uh, What you just heard was The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, My name is Eric Lintola. And I am Hunter Danson. And yet again, we say welcome. Uh, Hunter, before we talk about The Raven and many of Poe's other works that we've got the chance to read this week and at other times before, um, what's in your glass? I have the Poor Man's Guinness, which is a McGuire's stout <laughs> that I got at Aldi um, <laughs> in my mug. Uh, what's in your glass? I... Uh... <laughs> It is a tea. It is called uh, White Chocolate Obsession. <laughs> tea with the rich flavor of white chocolate. And there's a bunch of uh, kisses on the front uh, oh. of this tea thing. It's It made me very uncomfortable when I saw it, but I am um, first taste right now. It's about as bad as you'd think it was, okay. but it's hot. Yeah. Um, uh. <laughs> It was was not a pleasant face. Mm -mm. But it's warm. Yeah. (laughs) It's warm. (laughs) Yep, yep. Uh, Hunter, what are you raising glass or pouring one out for this week? Um, I am raising glass to puzzles. Because I've had a puzzle on the the dining room table for an embarrassingly long amount of time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that I'm not going to say. Uh, but I was looking for something to do the other night. I was trying to wind down and I didn't want to look at a screen. So I went to the puzzle and mm. little, you know. Build your own screen. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was it was really good. It was a great time. I think we forget That's awesome. how engaging puzzle can be. Um, even maybe more engaging than... A bunch of pickles, bah. <laughs> pickles, bunch of pixels. A bunch of pickles. Yeah, bunch of pickles, uh, pixels, mm-hmm. and sound being blasted at us. Um, mm, that's good. You know, that reminds me of one of my favorite jokes. Uh, what's green and flies through walls? A pickle. You just have to throw it hard <laughs> enough. Yeah, it's uh, an oldie but a goodie. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice. Anything you're pouring one out for? I'm pouring one out for, not because of, I'm pouring one out for church sound guys, because. On be, be on behalf on of? On behalf of, yes. Um, okay, that's different. Yeah, because uh, even if they do their job perfectly and amazingly, no one notices. And, their own, and if they mess up uh, just a little bit, in the uh, Sisyphean task of making non-professional <laughs> musicians and singers and with non-professional equipment uh, sound sound good and sound professional. Um, if they mess up just a little bit, then everyone notices them. Uh, but it's, uh, 
our, our sound guys at, at the church um, work really hard and uh, don't don't get enough recognition. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm raising a glass this week to libraries. Um, okay. We yeah. went to the library, walked to the library near us for the first time yesterday. And uh, Caleb uh, got his first library card. Yay. And so now all three of us have a library card. We actually, all three of us got new library cards. That's great. Um, my mom has worked a lot, worked the library for a long time and retired last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, it was just such a joy. And it's, and if you haven't been to your local library, go. Um, yeah. It is. Once you go to your library, you're just going to want to go back and go back and go back and go back. It's, Libraries are amazing, um, and they're getting even more amazing than I think they had been before. Like the library, our library, you can, you know, rent books, obviously, and movies, and Nintendo Switch games, and other different games, and the new new albums, and sewing machines. Hmm. Um, yeah. Like libraries got it all. There's a, there a, a puzzle there you can printer. work on. Yeah, so did so did ours. Yeah. I was I learned about um, Mother Buddha. Uh, one of the uh, Hmm. One of the uh, librarians was sharing about uh, I, 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 the way she was describing Mother Buddha um, <laughs> was not actually, uh, it was clear that it wasn't actually a Buddhist oh, okay. uh, thing. So it was, it was interesting. Um, but uh, libraries, I love libraries. Mm-hmm. It's been, it's been a long time since I've been to one of our local libraries. And so um, raising a glass of libraries, librarians, library techs, everybody who works in libraries, like, Keep up the good fight. You're doing great work. I yeah. appreciate you. I signed a letter in support of libraries because publishers charge uh, too much for libraries to use to like rent ebooks uh, mm. to people, and it's really there are a bunch of other uh, authors that people actually know who signed it too. But uh, yeah, support your support your library. I like that. Uh, and I'm going to pour one out for potholes. Oof. Yeah. No more said. Yeah. So, Hunter, um, before we talk about Poe, I just want to give a shout out to my wife, Melanie. Um, I didn't was not clear enough last week that the um, our special episode was at the special request of my wife. Oh, okay. Uh, I was a big Taylor Swift fan, and um, I'm sure would have added a lot more to the conversation than either of us could have. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, thank you, Melanie. I love you. I, I hope you enjoyed the episode, uh, and I'm excited to see your face if and when you finally hear this. Um, <laughs> you're the best. Hmm. I think it should just always be noted that uh, Hunter and I raise a glass to specific random things, um, but there is always in both of our lives glasses raised to our our families, and specifically our wives and, and sons. Yes. So. Uh, there's a. I was looking at author top ten tips. Authors just putting like their own personal rules, and I forget who it was, but his first one was marry a loving and supportive wife. <laughs> And it's yeah. true. If you want some, you need a lot of stability and support to try mm. and write. 
Hey, on that, uh, we will be talking about Poe's uh, story, a little bit of his uh, autobiography later on. Um, but in a very, I think the way Edgar Allan Poe would want us to talk about this is like, just talk about the beauty of the art first. Mm. And then maybe talk a little bit about him. Um, and then we're going to talk about some other works that he's done. Uh, Hunter, I wanted to bring the the Raven before us, our conversation this week. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you'd also have read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe more so than I have. Um, and we're all for having this conversation. Um, thank you for uh, making me sound good uh, in reading The Raven uh, <laughs> earlier on in this podcast. Uh, I, I I love it. Um, I was uh, first introduced to it um, my first year of college, mm. actually, um, through a huge book of poetry. Um, I might have heard it beforehand, but like I didn't connect with it. I don't know. It, it really kind of stuck with me. Um, I guess now 10 years ago, uh, nine, mm. 10 years ago. And I, uh, when the first time I read it, I actually, I think I had memorized the first few stanzas. Mm. Um, and I did not just do all of that from memory in case anybody's wondering. Um, but honestly it's written in a way that one could memorize it because of the, way Poe writes it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always easier to memorize things that rhyme. Um, it's not an easy poem by any means. It's not a simple poem. Yeah. Um, but it is a poem that sticks with you and it stuck with me a lot. Um, I, I, we've now, I've now read the Poe's own like philosophy of composition about the Raven, <laughs> uh, which is what we'll be talking about in a minute. So it's, it's kind of hard to think of like, it, for for me, a part of it's like a like oh, it just stuck with me because you know that's what it does, and it mm. just it's almost like it's gonna be a weird follow me on this analogy. Okay, um, it's like eating oatmeal um, when you're hungry because like oatmeal like sticks to <laughs> all the parts of you, like it just sticks to you, it just like clings on, it makes you feel full. Okay. And like you might yeah. not be able to like even if like it's not your favorite thing to eat, and growing up oatmeal was my favorite thing to eat, but mm. even if it's not your favorite thing to eat, like it like it fills you. Um and you know it will you know you'll come back to it. Uh maybe not all the time, but every so often. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh does, what do you think on that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd I'd say uh Thanksgiving dinner maybe. Um, you know, you have it once a oh, year. Wow. You think it's a feast? It stays with you throughout the year. Mm. So you get those five pounds that you can never lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hunter, I wanted to share my own version of a summary of this story. Um, if you're Paul Poe talks about his own version of a summary of this place, but like I, I was on a plane today, uh, and I made these beautiful sticky note, pink sticky notes. Yeah. Of the different stanzas. Um, and it's not that long. I promise it's a lot shorter than what I just read. Um, yeah. It's on sticky I am, notes. I am. Two sticky notes, right? Two. Four. 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 Okay. Well. Yeah. Uh, but if I put them, if I stick them together, it's only two front and back. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, I need to figure out, I'm in an Airbnb right now that is amazing. Um. And yes. there's a light over my head, but I don't know where the light switch is. So give me a moment. 
I can't find it. Wait, here it is. Aha. I'm brilliant. <sighs> now I can read. Oh, wow. Brilliant light. <clears throat> so, here is my version of a summary of uh, The Raven. Uh, a man um, wakes up late, or stays up late, reading books to stop thinking about his lost love, Lenore, when he hears a knock at his chamber door. Scared to open the door, um, he finally builds up the courage, opens it, and no one is there. He stands staring into the darkness, thinking dark things, dark dreams, he says, and whispering, Lenore. He closes the door, uh, finally, and soon after hears a tapping at his window. When he opens it, a raven comes into the room and perches above his chamber door. He talks to the bird and asks it, asks it its name, and the raven answers, nevermore. The man talks about the strangeness of the situation of the bird perching above his chamber door, saying, nevermore, and... You know, doesn't talk about anything else. Uh, some of this is hard to read, okay? Um, the, the, I get the, the turbulence moments. Oh, yes. Uh, as I was yeah, the um, pencil jumped. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yet again, the, the raven responds, nevermore, at the perfect moment in response to his question. Um, so he goes on thinking out loud about it and even brings his chair in front of the bird. I think it's somebody like bringing their chair in front of it, being just staring at it. Uh, he begins to think of Lenore again, smells her scent, and cries out once again. Uh, and the raven says, nevermore at the perfect moment. The, the, the man starts asking the, the raven questions with the anticipation of the answer being nevermore. Um, in response to that moment, the man starts yelling at the raven, calling it a prophet or a devil, and asks it more questions, to which the answer is yet again, nevermore. Uh, he asks it finally, uh, if he will ever yet again hold Lenore like, um, uh, in a different land after death, and the bird's answer is never, nevermore. In response, he shrieks at the bird, uh, telling it to leave, to stop lying, and to, and I quote, take thy beak from my heart. Bird's answer. Nevermore. And now the raven is still sitting, unmoving above his chamber door, like a demon with its shadow covering the man's soul that will be lifted. Nevermore. So, Andrew, that was my attempt at uh, making this poem yeah. maybe a little bit more understandable. Yeah. Um, I mean, you shared a little bit about this poem uh, and how it sticks with you. Is, do you think there's Do you think there's any other reason besides, like, maybe the language uh, and the sound of it that has? I think. In many ways, this is one of my first introductions to poetry. Mm. Um, I was the course I was in was a poetry like introduction course, and I read a lot of different types of poetry. And this was one of two or three poems that I think about somewhat regularly. 
And um, I think part of it also had to do with just kind of how like the dark edge of it. Hmm. Um, it is. Uh, we we t- just talked about uh, Taylor Swift's Midnight's album. <laughs> and that's what this is. This is a Midnight's poem. Um, midnight's to 3 a.m. if not later. This is a mm-hmm. um, like a poem that's written um, like about a guy who just like wants the morning to come. Um, yeah. And, and I don't read a lot of like darker things and this is definitely not Poe's darkest work, um, but it just, it has like a creepiness to it, but also like a, it's such a rich piece um, mm. that has been, it's synonymous with Edgar Allan Poe. Like this is. Yeah. It, uh, I think it's safe to say it made him famous. Um, mm-hmm. it was not rich, but it made him famous. Not rich. Uh, no, but it was, it was popular overnight pretty much. Mm-hmm. It, it just, the idea of like, this bird. And that's one of the things that he talks about um, in, in um, the philosophy of composition, which I think we can transition to. Um, I'll like yeah. kind of describe in a minute, but um, like he talks about um, just the realism of all of this. Like so much of this piece is, it could have happened. Um, right. It's a, yeah. the, the, the idea is this Raven learned one word and the word was nevermore. Um, and, and how often do we get in our own heads, like in a situation um, and <laughs> maybe yeah. not with a raven talking to us, but <laughs> um, where like we're just kind of building ourselves up like in frustration, in stress, in fear, in anger, in confusion, um, and often a negative emotion or mm-hmm. um, and um, it's just compounding on top of each other. And that's what this this poem poem does. Um, that's what the auth that's what the um, the primary character in this poem is doing. Yeah, uh, and the the bird is just the the object that is the mirror, really mm-hmm. pointing back at him. Yeah, he works himself into a frenzy. Not, and this is quoting um, the philosophy of composition not altogether because he believes in the prophetic or demonic character of the bird but because he experiences a frenzied pleasure in so modeling his questions as to receive from the expected nevermore the most delicious because the most intolerable of sorrow Hunter, what is the philosophy of composition? We've talked about it a few yeah. times. You just gave a really great quote from from Poe about that. It, what in- <laughs> it is an essay written by Poe, uh, which is, I think, partly an attempt to actually um, benefit from his work. Um, I think he was paid $9 for the Raven total. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I mean, it was the 1800s, but even back then it was, you know, as popular as it was, he barely, he barely made a cent. And he was poor. I mean, he tried to support himself and his family with his pen and he failed. Um, and he never succeeded. Uh, and 
this essay is Poe explaining how he wrote The Raven and the reasoning behind it. Um, and he said it would be, he, he said, he talks about how, uh, how great it would be to read about an author um, rechasing the steps uh, in which they have created a work. And I think it's kind of funny in the introduction. Um, he says, I am aware, on the other hand, that the case is by no means common in which an author is at all in condition to retrace the steps by which his conclusions have been attained. Um, and then he proceeds to do it. And he says, <laughs> <laughs> the work proceeded step by step to its completion with the precision and rigid consequence of a mathematical problem. Uh, I encountered this essay in college. Uh, I took 19th century American literature. Um, okay. Not realizing that it was like a 300 level class, and I was not an English major. Um, <laughs> I just took it because, like, a 19th century American literature, I should, I feel like I should know about that. That might be interesting. But it was a really hard class, and um, I passed, but. <laughs> you know <laughs> C's get degrees C's get degrees yeah yeah um <clears throat> and it was kind of funny I, I remember our professor asked us you know do you believe Poe um you know like do you believe that Poe wrote this poem like he would have written a mathematical problem and I don't not not altogether I I appreciate his. What do you think, Eric? Do, do you think I was going to ask you that exact same question? Because yeah. he goes all into it. And if you want to, like, it's very interesting. Like, it's a really interesting thing to read. Mm-hmm. Like, he even talks about like he decided on the long O sound, um, followed yeah. by the R, and from there he's like, once you have that together, the clear word to lion on is nevermore. And in fact, that was the first word that came to mind. I. Mm-hmm. I feel like in many ways this this whole piece is like a work of just showing like how Poe writing about how smart he is. <laughs> um and I just don't like when people do that. Yeah. Um I I don't think people are machines. And this feels like very much a machine process, but maybe it was. Honestly, I I I don't know. I don't have enough information. I don't know enough about him to say he was lying or like not telling the truth. And this might be how he remembers it. Um, I know that I cannot remember how I come to the ideas of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I also don't think it anywhere in any way like Poe. Um, yeah. I am not a rational step-by-step thinker. I Who among us? can claim to be a, a rational step-by-step thinker in totality. I did like some of the things. So like some of the pieces that he said, like made a lot of sense to me. Like he, he starts by, he like, he wanted to be read in one unified sitting. Right. Um, yeah. Like pretty much as long as it could be without being two sittings. Yeah. Um, and so he ran, he's like, that brought me to about a hundred, hundred lines. Um, and like, he's a poet, like I trust his ability to know the length of that. Mm-hmm. Like, um, 
And this wasn't the first thing he's he wrote. He wrote many things. Um, I'm sure he wrote many unpublished things as well. Um, yeah. And so I would assume that there's level of creation of things. I don't know. I've, I've heard authors talk about how they created plots to shows or to, to books that I'm like, huh. They're like, yeah, like I really like the idea of a, a Ocean's Eleven and and magic. <laughs> and I hadn't really read too many like fantasy heist books. Right. And so that's kind of what this all comes down to. And you need each of the different types of characters in a heist. And you need the twist. And so like, there's an aspect of pulling back the curtain that can feel a little like, ah, like it's not the beautiful pieces of it, Um, which I, which is where he starts. Yeah. Um, But he gets so specific at times that I'm just like, you know, even if he was thinking that and like, he might've like, it was not in this type of rational order. I think that there's some truth to the essay, but I think it's, it's a lot of the detailed things are probably exaggerated. Um, and I that's mean, what makes good writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the thing is like a good author can make a bad idea compelling. It can tell a story mm-hmm. with a bad idea. And a bad author, no matter how good their idea is, well, if they do a bad job, like they're just not, it's not going to be a good story. <laughs> but they can still yeah. sell books and movies. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Are you ready for that? First player? <laughs> no. Uh, there is... Not a single shade in 50 that I would be ready for that. <laughs> oh, that I tried. Good. I tried. Um, yeah, it, was, it was good. But I think the interesting thing, Poe said, my first object, parentheses, as usual, was originality. Mm. And he says the fact is, Originality, unless in minds of very unusual force, is by no means a matter, as some suppose, of impulse or intuition. In general, to be found, it must be elaborately sought, and although a positive merit of the highest class, demands in its attainment less of invention than negation. And Poe wrote everything um we remember him popularly as a horror author and the author of the raven um but he also wrote science fiction he wrote a short story called the balloon hoax um that was kind of like describing a zeppelin uh the first zeppelin before there really was like zeppelins um and he does a lot of like hard science fiction in it. He did, goes into great detail about the design of the balloon and the science behind how the altitude is maintained. Um, I have a physics friend who I, I sent the story to, and he's like, yeah, like theoretically the way that they maintain altitude could work, but maybe not practically. But I mean, you know, this is the 1800s and um, yeah, early 1800s. Yeah. And like he died in 1849. Yeah. 
so like Poe wrote science fiction. He wrote, um, we're going to talk about the Perlin letter. He, he basically invented detective fiction. Um, mm-hmm. He wrote Sherlock Holmes before Sherlock Holmes. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of other things too. Um, and he, he sought originality elaborately. And he wasn't really rewarded in his lifetime. Uh, Poe, he died, I think, in his 40s. Um, he had kind of, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Poe himself could write a more literary life and death than. <laughs> he died at the age of 40. Yeah. Um, under pretty mysterious circumstances. Um, they're still not really sure. It was probably, he was an uh, alcoholic. So hazard to guess it had something to do with that. Um, mm-hmm. we still don't know. Yeah, but we still don't know. Uh, and we probably will never know. Well, because his, 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 he was a, his, uh, he was born in 1809. His father abandoned his mother mm-hmm. and then his mother died in 1811 when he was two years old. Yeah. And then lived with family of his guardian, John Allen, in the United Kingdom. Yep. Yeah, he, he had a pretty... And then he married his sickly cousin. Yeah, and she was 13. He was 21. Yeah. He was 27. 27. Yeah, that's... And then she died in 1845, 1847 mm-hmm. of complications of tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. Yeah. I didn't realize she was that young. There, so there's, there's a lot of pieces of this that... Yeah, yeah you said it earlier. You couldn't <laughs> have... Uh, yeah. Uh, it, uh, one of my favorite literary details is a, the Poe toaster who starting in, I think, the 1930s would come on the anniversary of Poe's death every year, uh, drink a bottle of cognac, and put three roses on Poe's grave in Baltimore. Every year uh, until like 2008 or something. I don't know. Maybe it was it died off and then someone else took it up. Um, and I think they might be still doing it. Um, but they wore uh, a black coat and they would always come in the early morning um, for Poe's death. And they would wear a big black hat and kind of like a face covering, um, which is just perfect for, for Poe. He also was, uh, it's important to note, um, most, almost, most of the work he did was in popular magazines. Mm-hmm. So he was writing both for a popular audience and for a critical audience. Yeah. Um, and so there are, in the United States especially, there were a lot of people who like weren't, didn't even think of him as being a big deal. Um, he actually, I don't know if, if you were, how much of this came into your research. Um he became huge in France. Yeah, so the other thing about his death is 
somehow this guy who hated his guts became the executor of his estate um, and promptly went about destroying his work and destroying his reputation in America. But his work uh, was translated in France uh, and he became very popular in France because he has kind of like a um, challenger of the status quo. There's a, a quote kind of about that. The, the guy who um, translated Poe's work into French was the writer Charles Baudelaire, mm-hmm. um, who I guess was pretty famous in, in France. Um, one thing Poe taught Baudelaire in the middle of the 19th century and what critics have taken a long time learning themselves is that the most powerful and serious art in the modern era might take shape in what were once easily derogated as small or minor genres, the sensational tale, not the heroic epic, the occasional sketch, not the history painting. And Poe's, you know, just this, another quote from this piece, um, Poe's, uh, ta- uh, Poe's takes, um, he sketches the mournful interior spaces of the modern mind. Uh, I heard that, I was like, I feel like that's pretty accurate to, kind of what I'm experiencing and what Poe talks about in his own, um, yes, the philosophy piece, uh, the philosophy of composition, but also like what you see in characters like main character in the Raven and uh, in some of these other pieces, the cask of Amontillado, is that how you say it? I think so. Yeah. Uh, Amontillado. Um, like, there is so much melancholy and like horror that's at work within somebody's own mind. Hmm. And it, it's it, the horror is you know, my wording of that. I just, um, like there's so much of a desire for reliving the glorious and lost past. Um, hmm. Past that is gone, never to return. Nevermore. Nevermore. There's uh, one other quote I wanted to share about Tapo's shaped literature uh, before we get into the stories that have shaped us. Um, and that is in my forward by Jorge Luis Borges, uh, who wrote. Every writer creates his own precursors. And it's a quote that I was confused by when I first read it. But as I've thought about it more this week, there's kind of a circular relationship because in, in this, in my forward, this guy uh, mentioned some of the authors influenced by Poe, including Melville, Baudelaire, Dostoevsky, Robert Louis Stevenson, Oscar Wilde, Conrad, Conan Doyle, Kipling, H.G. Wells, Kafka, and Nabokov. Um, just those people? Yeah, just them. Just a couple <laughs> lesser-known authors. <laughs> um, and I think I, I think that the idea is that if you were to read 
um, Nabokov and Dostoevsky and Louis Stevenson yeah. and Oscar yeah. Wilde, you would end up and, and not read Poe. You would end up writing something that Poe might have written. Um, so it's kind of this like circular relationship. Yeah, well, I'm also thinking like, hey, like if I decide to write fantasy, I you'd probably see more Tolkien and Sanderson and Jordan, you know, and maybe Rowling and Frank Herbert, maybe in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might see less of the other influences in my life. But if I started writing poetry, you might still see Tolkien, but you're probably not going to see Robert Jordan. <laughs> they, like I almost like. And and obviously I'm just talking about genres and it's, it's more than just that. Like, mm-hmm. but in a sense, like what you choose to write impacts who you might be channeling at least yeah. consciously, if not yeah. also subconsciously. Yeah. Every writer creates their own precursors. Like that. And so we're going to talk about some stories that have shaped us. Yeah. Well, we're going to, yeah, I'm going to let you lead this next little bit of it because um, a couple of these stories were, well, one of them was new to me. Um, I've talked about the one that's shaped me the most and I will keep going back to it. So, okay. Which one do you want to start with talking about? I'd like to start with the purloined letter. Um, okay. Start happy and work very sad. Yeah. Well, I want to save the mask of red death for last because. I think it's the biggest one for me. It's the yeah. one I come back to. Oof. Yeah. Be in your mind. Mm. <laughs> uh, do you want do you want to give a uh, walk through uh, the yeah, so letter in, the... in a minute and a half, two minutes? Yeah. At Paris, just after dark, one gusty evening in the autumn of 18, I was enjoying the twofold luxury of medication and a meerschaum. In company with my friend C. Auguste Dupont in his little back library or book closet, Autroisiem, number 33, Rue du Nom, Faubourg, Saint-Germain. That is the beginning of the Proline Letter, and it is a detective story in which a minister comes to... Inspector Dupont for help uh, in solving this case of a thief who has stolen a letter, purloined this letter in a very ingenious way and cannot find it. He's searched the hotel of the thief. They know who the thief is in the situation, but the thief is clever enough to hide the letter in a place that they can never find it. And they examine chairs and tables with microscopes. They <laughs> go through every inch of this hotel and they don't find it because as DuPont guesses, the thief has hidden the letter in a clever way that the French police will uh, would not have been able to guess. Um, and if... When I was reading that introduction, you thought, hey, that sounds like Sherlock Holmes. Where's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? (laughs) You're right, because 
this this is this one little short story. It's not very long. Um, invented detective fiction. There wasn't mm-hmm. anything like uh, Sherlock Holmes before this story. The very first adventure of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was published on October 14th in 1892. Mm-hmm. The Purloin Letter was published in April of 1845. Yeah. What do you think? Of oh, I, I so I as I was reading this, I was like, I've read this before, and it's not just because <laughs> I've read Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, but uh, I loved it. It's I, I wrote a it's all about sticky notes on the plane today. <laughs> um, I wrote proto Sherlock Holmes, uh, I said, full of wit, absurd deduction, and much too much thinking, yet wholly interesting and provocative provocative uh, like it's just a very like just makes you yeah i i really enjoy it um it's very different than the other pieces that we read by poe for today one could say um, that the purloined letter is a very evocative object <laughs> oh man remember reading that for first year of college <laughs> don't anyways. don't read it <laughs> don't no no the rest of our mm-hmm. class didn't Born one out <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> true <laughs> people failed their first assignment uh nobody cared um <laughs> it was this was a lot of fun um honestly the, the degree to which so much of this this book sorry this story which is only a few pages long is just the whole thing is just dialogue Sorry, it's almost entirely monologue. Um, and so if you're looking for like action, like the action always like had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it's very fun to read. Um, and it's so well, I found, I so for me, like um, I think that it was so well communicated that I was like, oh, I know exactly where the, like I, I knew the punchline before we got there. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is part of the, goal of it hmm. what do you think about that is that is that right or do you think because um, it was or do you think that's just my modern view of it maybe um you know because we are very familiar with mystery yeah uh, and when poe was what's writing, the twist yeah no one really was familiar with this when they're writing it it's kind of anachronistic <laughs> yeah thing, sorry um i i thought it was really fun um it's a it's a short read it, you can read it in 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe 20 minutes, I guess, but it's, um, I gotta be honest. I just kind of skipped over the names every time I got to them. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of some French, there's some Latin, there's even a couple algebra, there's some algebra equations. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that part was funny. Yeah. Um, this is actually funny because we were talking about how uh, in um, keep forgetting the name of this philosophy of composition, Poe is uh, talking about creating the raven as a, a mathematical equation, mm-hmm. and in the Purloin letter, um, the Dupont is calling out the 
French police because they only think of things like a mathematical equation mm-hmm. uh, and they don't add the poetry to it. Yeah. Uh, which is where real reasoning is. And there's, there's, there you could do I think you could dive really deep into this thing and like try to dive through like the whole psyche of this primary character and um, what he's really saying. I, I wasn't interested in doing that on this mm-hmm. read. I was just interested in reading it for the, yeah, for the, the oh, gotcha type moment, mm-hmm. um, which I was excited to see come up. Um, yeah, and the, uh, I this is definitely a character that like Sherlock Holmes, like you want to like, but you realize that like it's not a likable character. <laughs> um, but the character he talks to is the Watson, and like everybody yep. likes Watson. Yeah. Um, cause Watson's like a smart person. Right. Like, but still a person. Yeah. He's not, he's no debunk. next to. Yeah. He's not, yeah. Not a jerk. Uh, that's my simplified language for the many things that I think DuPont is. DuPont is. Uh, yeah. He's doesn't have too much patience for, uh, the prefect. Who is, I mean, it's hilarious. This is a whole piece of the prefect talking about every single, like, every single rock they unturned. Mm-hmm. Like, and it just, it becomes a joke. Like, oh, but did you check the grounds? Like, of course, thankfully, they were all brick. So using our microscope, we were able to go around and see that there was no extra blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, you know, oh, but, you know, when you roll a piece of paper, um, it can be put even in the back of a chair, like in the the pegs that make yeah. a chair, whatever. He's like, oh, we look used a microscope and looked around every single one of it. If we found a piece of dust, it would have looked like an apple to us. <laughs> we would have known. And this whole list just kind of keeps going on and on and on. Hunter, um, do you want to give the twist or should we just let that be? I think we'll let readers? it be. It's short enough uh, and I don't think we need to spoil it too. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was a fun little piece and even just kind of the way that um, he goes about finding it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm I'm really a sucker for um kind of like the renaissance man, like poet and mathematician writer. <laughs> tea is not good. <laughs> I don't think I've ever spit water tea back in the cup before. It's just not. It's all right. <laughs> But the, I don't know, the, just the kind of, I, I, I guess it's a, a mark of like 19th century literature um, where there's just such a passion for learning everything and doing everything. And um, the, there's a, it's, a, it's like kind of a fervor um, about uh you know, wanting to to make a blimp, a balloon that'll fly across the ocean, um, as Poe writes about in the balloon hoax. And uh, you know, if you read H.G. Wells, he has kind of that um, spirit as well, which you know H.G. Wells was influenced by Poe. Um, and I don't know. I'm just I'm really kind of I, I love reading like older authors who were writing in an earlier time talking about uh technology imagining future technology oh, yeah. uh 
and not to not to like point fingers, but because they they come up with genuinely interesting ideas. Um, Twenty thousand leagues under the sea. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, I guess we'll end uh, our discussion of the Perlin letter with this one quote. Uh, Poe talks about he's talking about mathematicians. Uh, his the Watson says, "Oh, this the minister is a mathematician and no poet." And Dupont says, "You are mistaken. I know him well. He is both, as poet and mathematician, he would reason well. As mere mathematician, he could not have reasoned at all, and thus would have been at the mercy of the prefect." Hunter, we got two more. We're going to talk about. I want to give us a quick, just a very quick walkthrough of the cask of Amontillado because um, this is another story that stuck with me for a while, and I honestly could not remember that it was written by Edgar Allan Poe until I came across it again, across the name of it. It's like, oh, that's what it was. I definitely thought it was a different book many times. Um, and I can't remember what it was that I thought it was. Um, something that the title sounded the same, but the book itself is completely different. Mm. Um and it's just like a eight, ten page short story. Um, and the premise is this guy gets this Italian dude. I think he's Italian. Yeah, gets slighted by another Italian slighted by another Italian dude, and he bears this grudge against him um internally. He doesn't let the guy know that he's furious at him. Um, and he plots his demise. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm going to kill this dude. They don't um, even but, say you know, what the offense is. No. And that's just, one of the things that I think that I like what Poe does and, and so many other people do around this time. And even through the early 1900s is like the parts of the story that aren't important to the story. Don't get told. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and yet the minute details that may or may not directly impact the primary narrative like arc spotted upon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're missing huge chunks of things and yet you focus on these tiny details. I think it's great. Um, and, and so it starts with this guy being like, I'm going to kill this dude. Um, I'm going to find the right time and the right time comes upon it. Um, you know, 1800s Italy, they both have fancy houses and lots of money and servants and, um, wine cellars in air quotes that are really just crypts um, where their ancestors are buried and they have Mm -hmm. wine chilling around it. And he tells this guy, um, Mr. Fortunato, that he has a pipe of Amontillado, which I guess is super fancy wine. Mm -hmm. um, And that uh, he was going to have Lucchesi, Lucchesi, you know, this other, um, Lucchesi, um, you know, give him his thoughts on it. And Lucchesi and, and Amontillado and, and, and um, Mr. Fortunato clearly have like our opposing parties. And so he pretty much tricks for Mr. Fortunato into coming into his crypt. Um, and the guy's drunk, which helps. Um, and um, continually tricks him to walk deeper and deeper into this crypt in the middle of the night. Um, as a drunk dude without anybody else around until he gets him in the very, very back corner of this crypt and 
then uh, brick and mortars uh, chains him down to the into it and brick and mortars him uh, into uh, the very back of his crypt uh, while he's still alive. Yeah, uh, and it is terrifying. You can hear the jingles of his cap behind the mortar. Mm-hmm. It is terrifying. This story, I think, is the scariest of all the stories that we read about. Like, hmm. I, I think it is scarier than what we're. What uh, what's yeah. is scary? What scares you? The mask of the dead. I think it's because you know what's coming the entire time. Yeah. And because he's playing mind games with this character. Um, this is a story I've, re- like I said, I remembered it yeah. from, you know, after reading it 10 years ago. Um, but I, I, my note for this one was even creepier than I remember. Because <laughs> um, I, for- I forgot about the mind games that happened. It's not just that he like, um, brick and mortars him in, which is just, horrifying um or the fact that you don't even know why he's mad at this dude or the fact that this guy actually has a family and has a loving wife and kids and whatever it's that across the entire way he um this this guy who's going to kill him like gives him opportunities to get out of it Mm -hmm. but he does it in a way that's pretty much he knows he's like He's tricking, tricking Mr. Fortunato every step of the way to go deeper and deeper. Like all he had to do was say, no, nah, I'm fine. I mean, go. And like, maybe he would come get out. I don't know. But the Amontillado. Ah, but the Amontillado. The guy was drunk. Okay. It must be a fancy, fancy, fancy. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's. I think that Fortunato is a more, well, I don't know, interesting is not the right word, but I think I'm intrigued by Fortunato because you don't get as much of him. And I Mm -hmm. think he's, like, you think about what kinds of things lead us to our worst mistakes. And a lot of the time, they're kind of mundane things, like, Mm-hmm. Like for a, a gambler, um, you know, playing one game of blackjack is kind of a mundane thing, but many games of blackjack at the expense of everything else um, leads deeper and deeper into the crypt. And I don't that that's what I think about when I read it. Um, mm. Just you know, Fortunato. He just keeps saying, ah, but the Amontillado. Um, and I love the the beginning dialogue where he's like, you were not to be found and I was fearful of losing a bargain. And Fortunato, Fortunato says, Amontillado. And then he says, I have my doubts. Amontillado. And I must satisfy them. Amontillado. As you are. Yeah, the dude was drunk. Yeah. I, uh, in, in Fortunato's defense, like. Yeah. But it's by the time. Sorry, sorry. I'm I'm not trying to make fun of Fortunato. I'm saying like I understand. It's this allure of the Amontillado. Yeah, yeah. What's the Amontillado in your life? (laughs) What is it that you're unknowingly following to death? What is it that is becoming 
the primary thing in your life? Uh, That's not a question to answer. Yeah. It's a question for, for all of us to ponder. It might seem kind of jokingly. Obviously, I bring it up jokingly. But uh, those are the type of questions I like asking. Yeah, that's, about. those are the type of questions Poe thinks about, I think, too. Because mm-hmm. like he's, like, there's niter along the the walls that like are causing Fortunato to go into coughing fits, and he's using some liquid mm-hmm. courage, one might say, um, to get through them. Um, but like, it's damp, it's dark, it's ignoring all the warning signs. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's like watching a a horror movie where you know the character you you know, you know the character's gonna die and you're seeing the evil character like give them ways out mm-hmm. and you know they're not gonna take it and yet you want them to. Yeah. It's I've been in a I spent time in Scotland and I was in Edinburgh. Um and Edinburgh is a city built on top of a city. Um, and it was only the last like I don't know, 30 to 50 years they found the city underneath it. It was sealed off because of the Black Plague. Um, oh. And this is, yes, a transition to our next conversation. Um, but I was in the, the lower city. That's probably not the right wording, but um, catacomb type feels. Again, not catacombs like you would envision in Italy, but um, at midnight uh, for a, like a night tour with my sister at one mm. point, and they turned off all the lights, and like it's terrifying. Like it, it was not just like dark and scary and like dank, um, but like you could, I, I don't know, I, I was like, it, it felt like the type of place where if there were evil spirits that were walking around and. I don't did not believe in spirits um, like that. That's where they would be mm. like reaching out and touching you. Um, and like they're walking past like dead relatives from ages past and like, yeah, everything about it just says turn back. Mm. But talking about the black death, Let's then talk about uh, the Red Death. Tell me about the Mask of the Red Death. The Mask of the Red Death. I think I read this in high school the first time. Goodness. Uh, yeah. I had kind of a weird thing that would make me seek out horror stories and movies. Um, so, like, it wasn't part of your schooling. You just, like, it might have been. To. It, it might have been or it might not have been. I don't remember. Um, but I remember the story. Uh, it is about a country that is uh, in the midst of a plague that can is terrifying. Uh, it can kill people in like... 30 minutes. 30 minutes. And Prince Prospero uh, makes this castle fills it with all kinds of uh, amenities and entertainments and locks the doors and invites some of his friends and merrymakers to come and 
uh, live in the castle. No one's allowed out. No one is allowed in. There's servants and musicians. Um, and everyone is wearing these grotesque masks. It's kind of like a masquerade ball, but never ending and in the middle of a plague and you can't leave. And there are these rooms, uh, many colored rooms that are decorated very gaudily in which the people hang out. There's a blue room, I think, and a green room, mm -hmm. um, like a purple room. Um, and there's one room that no one goes in, which is the black room. And in the black room, there is a clock that clangs every hour and it clangs the number of, it tolls the number of hours. And when it tolls, the musicians stop playing. Everyone kind of stops and listens to the tolling and then goes back to their merrymaking. And at midnight, the bell tolls 12 times, which is longer than all the other tolls and, and people start going back. But then there's this new figure who appears in the castle and people, even though they are wearing um, very grotesque masks themselves, they are, they recoil at this, the sight of this figure in his mask. And there's a little excerpt I want to read. It's not very long. give some atmosphere. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams, and these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And into these dreams and these people comes the mask of red death. And he is a figure of the plague. And he goes through the rooms. Um, people part for him. And he sees Prince Prospero. And, and Prince Prospero, even though he has a taste for the grotesque, um, and the wanton uh, and the irreverent recoils. And he says, how dare you? And he goes, he asks them to seize them, but they all kind of step back from him because they can't touch him. And the mask of red death keeps going through all of rooms until he gets to the black room and Prince Prospero comes after him with a dagger. And the mask of red death turns around really quickly Prince Prospero drops the dagger and he falls dead. And all of the revelers afterwards, they finally go and they seize the Mask of Red Death and find that there is no one in the clothes. Um, and they all die. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had to come like a thief in the night. And one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay, and the red death 
held illimitable dominion over all. I at first was confused when you said earlier that you keep coming back to this one. Um, I'm understanding it more now as I think about it. Um, but why, Hunter? Why this one? It is a story that I have never forgotten since high school. Um, and I mean, part of it is the imagery and just the experience. I think Poe's style in this story is very poetic uh, and he employs some of the skill that he shows in the Raven in the word play um, to create atmosphere and introduce the dreams. And, you know, it starts off as with kind of exposition about the plague and you're like, okay, yeah, this is very plausible. And it just becomes more and more strange and kind of supernatural until the Red Death shows up. And I'm struggling to find like a concrete thing that has stuck with me. But I think part of it might be the justice of not, maybe justice is not the right word, the um, vengeance of the Red Death in the way that he punishes the revelers and that no one is safe from the red death yeah that no one can be made safe by money mm. or by power and that the red death will come and <clears throat> i think all of us are often dismayed by injustice in the world and mm. i think sometimes we wish for vengeance and <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i i you know even when i'm like even for imaginary things i wish for vengeance like when i'm watching a tv show or something and um mm -hmm. like there's a couple episodes of the x-files with some really canis uh serial killers and i'm just like man i have like zero sympathy for this character and um but we do that with real people too and I don't know. This this story just reminds me of that there is justice beyond our realm. Um, it kind of hints of that, I guess. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's one of the. So those are a couple of things that I was thinking about as we're starting this conversation. I was thinking about why this would be a piece that would come back to you. And that's a similar reason as to why it would come back to me. Um, this is the first time I've read it. Um, but the the idea of the this decadence and trying to escape mm. the death in the world. I mean, honestly, that's that's uh, um, the main character in Ready Player One's goal. Right. That's like his piece. Like, let me get out of this place. Yeah. Um, and I was talking with some friends just yesterday, 
And one of them really wisely was saying is that uh, so many of the decisions that we as humans make are about prolonging our life. Mm -hmm. And for so many people, the pursuit of money and power and influence uh, in his kind of his thesis was that that's a way of when all the things go bad, who is it that's most likely to get out hmm. and or be pushed away, you know, be in their own space, like the wealthy, the powerful, the rich, the elite, and that all of it is a game to see who can live the longest. Hmm. Uh, and yet, in reality, red death is coming for all of us. <laughs> Uh, and it might not be a, a plague, yeah. and then pray it's not. Um, this kind of takes Poe po shares in um, this philosophy of composition that his primary goal, outside of being original, is for the is about the effect that he will have on the reader. Mm-hmm. It's less like his primary goal is not the story he's telling. Um, it's the effect. It's not what people will learn or the truth that they'll gain. And he said those are secondary pieces of it, Mm -hmm. but it's the effect on them. And that, I think what he does in this is he takes a a human situation and then makes it as, like takes it to its extreme. Yeah. And that's, I think, what the red mask of death is. Um, every aspect of it, from the greed and wealth and revelry to the speed of the death, mm-hmm. is extreme. Um, and even the lighting in the rooms yeah. is extreme. Because there's no lights in the rooms. It's these tripods of flames that are going through the the different glass windows that have been taint, uh, tinted so that they're red or green or blue or depending on the color of the room and the, the the black room has blood red windows um yeah and like again i think that's a visual aspect of bringing it to its extreme and he's able to convey so much in so few words mm-hmm um, and my wording for this, my deep takeaway from my post-it note is so dark. <laughs> this whole thing is so dark. It is definitely the darkest thing. Um, well, I think Cask of Montiato is way scarier, mm. but this is way darker. Yeah, I mean... Red Death held illimitable dominion overall, so presumably... Everyone is dead. Which is about as dark as you can get uh, on this earth. Part of me kind of likes that, though. Like, man, I don't want the rich people to be alive. Yeah. That's the the avenging aspect of it um, (laughs) that I think I liked. And um, (laughs) but, you know, the. the, (sighs) It's just, uh, I think, especially in America, like you were saying, we uh, tried to escape 
the darkness in the world um, with revelry and all kinds of distractions and dissipation. But we can't really. Yeah. Oh, there could be such an incredible modern retelling of this. Hmm. Well, I mean... Like, without even stretching that hard. Well, the obvious application is COVID, because um, we just... Yeah, well, I was but, trying yeah. to not... You know, yeah. 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 I, we, honestly, we could have a whole season where we talk just about, like, different plague stories. Yeah, well... Storytellers, yeah. which maybe at some point would be right. It doesn't feel right right now. No. Um, there's a book called The Plague that I read for a, a couple years ago. Well, no, a few four years ago now. It was incredible. I was crying almost the entire way that I'd love to talk about at some point. Yeah. Um, but doesn't feel like a story to to talk about it at this point. No. So, Hunter, um, anything else to share about Poe or the stories? Um, one thing I thought of an analogy and I think I didn't really think about how much Poe influenced literature in general, um, American literature, especially before this week, I just kind of enjoyed some of his stories and his poetry and stuff. Um, but I think that Poe is kind of like Robert Johnson in that he wrote a lot of really short stories um, and not a huge body of work wasn't didn't really achieve a lot of fame during his lifetime but his legacy um, Robert Johnson is uh, credited with uh, the creation of the blues not maybe maybe not the creation but um the consummation of blues maybe uh and his songs he, he had like an album's worth of songs it was like 30 songs or something like that they were short and uh but he he himself his life is kind of a legend he, he's is said to have made a deal with the devil to learn to play guitar the way that he did and um, has had a huge influence on blues and rock and roll by extension. And rock and roll is so big. Um, When you think about Poe, like, you know, all of the authors named in uh, this forward uh, is, is huge. And it's not something that I had pondered a lot, but, now that I think about it, it really is um, Poe is maybe not my favorite author, but I I appreciate his his influence and his legacy, and and I can't deny that my my own <laughs> writing is very dark and um, definitely takes inspiration from from Poe and the kind of uh, effect that he achieves i don't know if i am how successful i am but um 
it's he he achieved his goal of being original yeah. and and he has I'd a like, mascot for a football team named after him oh yes the ultimate achievement I'm i sure mean tell me right. another author who has a mascot of a professional football team uh, i don't know in that world <laughs> there's none no Right, it's it's not the ball. It's yeah, it's, it's the Ravens, not the Orioles. <laughs> the Orioles is the baseball team. Yeah, well, that's what I'm. Um, that's what I'm just making sure. Yeah, Ravens. Whew. Just worried for a second there. Um. Okay. Well, thank you all for sharing and walking with us in the middle of a a dark uh, dark episode. And I'm I'm filming from filming. Oh, not filming. I'm uh, casting, pod, podding, podcasting, speaking, recording, a, recording. That's it from a bed Airbnb in a, a rainy um, Seattle, which is really fun first time I'm here, but. I definitely uh, am feeling some of the aspects of once upon a midnight dreary as I wandered weak and weary over many quaint and query volume of forgotten lore. Uh, hmm. And uh, hope if you're in that type of situation, you, you think of Poe. Um, maybe maybe don't think of Poe's life, um, but think about his work. And that's a big piece that he focused on um, mm-hmm. is the beauty of the writing. That was so important to him um, by his own words. And maybe he should be judged based on the beauty of what he writes versus his story. Maybe not. I think that's a piece that our our culture is really struggling with right now is what is, how do we decide whether we should continue listening to or reading from or celebrating the work of somebody who may have done and or said and or lived in a way that um, we might fully disagree with. And mm. I think you know, there are certain parts of Poe's story that I learned today that might kind of cause me to ask some of those questions. And and you know, just because maybe, maybe it was okay 200 years ago, Maybe not. Eh, I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't sound right, but um, yeah, his his work is pretty incredible, and is still impacting uh, authors today or culture today. And um, created a lot of precursors. Yeah. Imagine no Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. No okay. Benedict Cumberbatch has no, Sherlock Holmes. No, I mean no Scooby Doo. No Scooby Doo. Yeah. No uh, Lovecraft. Is that like H.P. Lovecraft? No. I guess. Well, no Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> I 
don't know if you know that one. Mm. I promise it, it is it is kind of big. Um, uh huh. Yeah. I believe you, Hunter. <laughs> no H.G. Wells. Mm. The War of the Worlds. No, uh, Moby Dick. Or the Worlds actually has a very uh, Red Mask of Death type ending. Does it? Yes, for the aliens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now we ramble off into oblivion. Uh, I actually did that earlier again yesterday of talking with these same friends. Uh, because of our conversations, I notice sometimes I just kind of ramble off and I'll just kind of stop talking. <laughs> like I'm done and it'll be part of the way through a sentence. And I did yeah. that yesterday and everybody was like, and I took a drink of coffee and everybody was like staring at me and I was like, what? I'm done. Like, I don't have anything else to say. Like, <laughs> you didn't finish your statement. I was like, yeah, but that would have been a preamble to a much longer statement. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Uh, Learn that There's from you, the, the podcast voice. Um, I think it for me the podcast voice is also the I'm sleepy voice, <laughs> <laughs> at least right now. <laughs> but I guess you do. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I have a podcast voice too. I feel like your voice. You're very good at like enunciating. Um. But even then, I feel like I I get to hear your voice coming through. Yeah, I, I hope so. It's my voice, not someone else's. <laughs> I yeah, that's. I don't hear somebody else's voice coming through. Yeah. Um, and this is the rambling that we were talking about. So, on that, uh, I bid you never more adieu. And you too. And you. Thank you. Thank you.